like I did last week. Um, apologies, I don't have a PowerPoint uh, today. It's on the USB pen that I have, um, and I know exactly where it is. It's on the kitchen table next to my glasses, and next to a little list of three or four things that uh, Kim realized we don't have for packed lunch for tomorrow, so, um, so I'll need to phone her later on. I do apologize, too, because I'd forgotten. Normally, I'm quite... I know we're, when all the churches have lunches, some churches do it in the first Sunday, some do it in the last, some do it in the third, some do it in the fifth Sunday of the month. And I forgot that this was second Sunday soup, is that what you call it? Because uh, I have to head off again to Greenock tonight when I finish a series that I'm doing there. The series that I did with you in First John last year. So I do apologize that I would need to, I can't stay for, for, for soup. I won't make that mistake again. Um, Last week we started this little series in this amazing little letter of Titus, Uh, a series that I've entitled, although I'm no doubt not the first to entitle it such, Entrusted. Uh, And we looked at the fact that the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul himself knew exactly who he was. For over 30 years he was a slave of God, a servant of God of Jesus. And he knew where he had come from, for he was an apostle, which means a sent one. He was sent by Jesus. So he knew where he came from, and he knew that he was sent. And he knew also why he was here, for the faith of God's elect. And we read that in chapter 1, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. And finally, he knew where he was going because he spoke of the hope of eternal life. And that is our hope, isn't it? And I think as I look back now in the nearly 30 years that I've been a Christian, my defense, I must have been saved as a toddler, um, but the 30 years as a Christian, I think that I have emphasized more as I look back over the ministry, I've emphasized more the the, the length of this eternal life that God offers because it's everlasting and that's true and that's, that's, that's fantastic. But the life that we have is a full life, is an abundant life in Christ, is the life that God intended for us when he created us. And Paul has this hope of this real life, this eternal life, which was promised before the beginning of time. And we looked at that in the first few verses of chapter 1. Now, it's right for us to fix in our minds the importance, yes, even the essential nature that of Paul's desire to pass this letter and its contents onto Titus. Because Paul, as we know, at this moment is near the end of his life. And Titus will be responsible, along with Timothy and indeed other faithful ones, to faithfully transmit the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to further generations. For the danger of the transmission of the message is that the message, if we are not careful, can be subject to change if we are not careful. 
you know the idea of, uh, I'm, I'm not even sure if it's politically correct now to call it, are you allowed to still call it Chinese whispers? I'm not sure. But you know the idea of where you, you, you tell, um, you, you whisper something in someone's ear and then it goes along 10 different people and it looks nothing like or, or sounds nothing like what you started with, the message that you started with. And if you've got one or two um, characters in your family, as I have, they deliberately change the message as it goes along. Uh, so that it looks silly or sounds silly. And if we're not careful, and Paul knew this, if we're not careful about transmitting this message clearly and truthfully, it can change. And the problem that we've got with that is a gospel that is changed is no gospel at all. A gospel that falsely claim certain things is no gospel at, at all. That is why Paul is at pains to Timothy, to Titus, and indeed to others, and he points it out when others change the message that they have no right to do so because the fundamental nature of passing on the gospel and the truths of the gospel in an undiluted and unadulterated form is so important because people's lives are on the line. Aren't you glad that the gospel came to you? I saw a Facebook post, um, mentioned Facebook. You know, I'm um, just about um, with it. I'm on Facebook, not in anything else really, but on, on Facebook. And, and people were, were, were mentioning the fact that um, sharing this gospel message is so important. So important getting it across and using various different uh, forms and ways of, of getting the message across, but it's so important to get the message out, so important that we don't change it. The eternal future of humans is at stake. And more than that, more than that, and I say this with all the love that I have for, that God has given me for, for, for this world, more than that, the honor of God's name is at stake if we change his message. For if we get the gospel wrong, there is no power. There is no hope. It's not enough to be approximate when it comes to the gospel message. Can you imagine a builder approximating a 90-degree angle? You want to make sure he's getting this right. Can you imagine a truck driver guessing or approximating a right-hand turn? Probably some of us can. You know, you imagine that. You, you want to get that right, especially when you're driving a seven-tonner or even uh, bigger. You imagine going through life guessing what life is all about or going through life guessing what the gospel is all about. So when it comes to the gospel, there is no room for guessing. And Paul talks about preaching the message, which has been, if you look at that, if you've got your Bible open in chapter 1, we're going to be reading just in a minute, entrusted to me, verse 3, and also needs to be hold, held on to firmly so that we can encourage others by sound doctrine. One of the questions I get asked a lot when I travel back to, back to Scotland while I lived in France for those 10 years, it seems like another lifetime ago, was this, when I gave reports, what are the French like? What are the French like? 
Now, we have fine examples, no doubt, of what the, the French are like, but I wonder if you could try to summarize in a few words what the, the French were like. And my question is, what French are you talking about? The north, the south, the east, west? Are you talking about the Christians or those that aren't Christians? And just for your encouragement, there was one time I was sitting in a, in a coffee shop just outside the local cinema of Obanya and in the town that I was in, and the cinema was emptying of these people that had just been in watching a film, a Scottish film, okay, based in Greenock, where I'm going. And as they came out, I was listening to them, and I, I thought they, they, some of them sat at the cafe to have a, a coffee and so on. Kim and I and some friends were sitting having a, a meal, and of course, I overheard this group of French people sitting at the, co- the, the, the coffee shop next to us, the restaurant next to us, saying, ah, that's what the Scots are like. <laughs> but did you, hear, did you hear the language they used? No be careful about what I I say there, but hear the language they used, filmed in Greenock, okay? That's what they're like. That's what the Scots are like. You mustn't get them mixed up with the English. They're more refined. And I'm sitting there in this, this coffee shop wondering what on earth to say. What are the Scots like? I must admit that shocked me somewhat. When we come to the passage that we're looking at, Paul is going to encourage Titus to be a Christian and warn the people not to be Cretans, but Christians. Not to be Cretans, but Christians. So I want to to read from verse verse 5 of of chapter 1, because that's who we are as Christians. We are first Christians, and then everything else is secondary, whether it's Scottish, British, European, or whatever. We are first Christians. So, my arms are just long enough to read this without glasses. This is the Word of God. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, the husband of, but, of, of one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Every one of their own prophets has said Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and conscience are corrupted. They claim to know God, 
but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Amen. And may God bless his word to us. If I was upset sitting in the restaurant hearing the Scots being described, how much more would be the case if there are Cretans here listening to this description? They are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. Let me just take time to paint the picture of this man, Titus. For he was a Christian, Titus. During Paul's first missionary journey, a young man named Titus heard Paul preach about Jesus. Titus was Greek. He, was, he had not grown up worshipping the God of the Bible. As he listened to Paul, Titus heard, heard the message and his heart responded to the message and he believed in Jesus. And Paul brought him to Jerusalem. In Galatians 2, we, we, we read of that, to show the apostles and other Jewish believers how a Greek non-Jew could love God just as much as they did. And Titus represented all the other non-Jewish people who became Christians and, and, and were completely accepted by God through faith in Jesus Christ. And that is how we are saved. We, we are saved not because of what family we were born into, thankfully. I don't come from a Christian family. Maybe many of you do, but I, I, I don't. And I'm very glad that my salvation does not depend on the family that I was born into, even though they're a good family in case this has been recorded. But we are not saved because of our upbringing. Oh, our, our upbringing might help, might help in pre presenting the, the, the gospel to us. Of course, that's the case, but it's not necessarily, and it, it's not necessarily a positive thing, some people's upbringing. And Titus continued to travel with Paul uh, uh, on, on missionary journeys, helping in the work and sharing, sharing the gospel during the three years Paul was in Ephesus, teaching them about the amazing power of God. Titus was there. And Paul sent him to Corinth to help the tension that was going on in Corinth, all that to, and to collect money. All that to say is, this was a man that Paul trusted. This was a, a trustworthy Christian. And Paul thought of Titus not only as a very faithful friend, but also as a spiritual son because he had, uh, he had led him and been instrumental in him coming to Christ. Uh, and after Paul was released from the Roman prison where he had been for two years, he and Titus traveled to the island of Crete, and Paul and Titus taught the people called Cretans not Cretans, Cretans, about their need for God and the good news about Jesus Christ. And we read of that in, last week in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. And soon there were enough believers to start churches in, in several towns, and Paul wanted to go visit the church in Corinth. So he left Titus to continue teaching the new Christians and to appoint church leaders for the, for the new church. And someone eventually came to replace him in Crete. So Titus met Paul in western Macedonia and continued his missionary work northward into what is now Albania. And we read of that in 2 Timothy chapter 4. The gospel was really spreading into Europe. Aren't you glad 
that the gospel came to Europe. Aham is one of the most needy continents of the world today, the continent in which we're in, Europe, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Back in Crete, though, Titus was a busy man, and he cared for all the, all, all the new Cretan believers, especially because the people just didn't know how to do what was good in God's eyes. And Paul knew that Titus needed some encouragement and reminders of, of, of what was important to teach the people. So Paul wrote to Titus, uh, soon after writing First Timothy, we have the last three letters of Paul, First Timothy, Titus, and, and Second Timothy. Timothy, and probably while Paul was in Macedonia at this, this point, he, he, he wrote on his way to Nicopolis, and we read of that in Titus 3. All that to say is that Titus was modeling what it was to be a Christian. But before we look at what Christians should be like, we need to look at what it was to be a Cretan. And I'll do this and in verse order, we'll, we'll come back to verse, verse 5, but we'll continue on from, from verse 10 at the minute. Imagine one of your own people and prophets saying, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons, verse 12. Imagine you describing your own people like that. Maybe some of you do, I don't know. Not a, a great description, is it? What are people to evangelize? Imagine trying to evangelize evil brutes, lazy gluttons, and people who always lie. Those who are consistent liars, those who are consistently evil and and lazy and, and gluttons. And we might think that it's tough where we are in Scotland. Imagine trying to evangelize these people. Imagine trying to knock them into shape. When you you think on it, Crete was probably one of the first places to hear the gospel since there were Jews from from Crete who listened to Peter on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. But the gospel message was not finding an easy resting place on the island of Crete to take root and grow. Cretans were awful. They were liars. In fact, They were such liars that the Greeks had a special verb for lying, which they they used to cretize. You imagine your own nation being used as a verb to describe something negative, like lying, or uh, Scotland, to Scottish was to lie. You imagine that? That such a trait was among these, these people to describe them generally like that because most of them were like that. Now, it stands to reason that if lying marked out the Cretans, then remember Paul is writing to Titus about those within the church. It stands to reason that some of these Cretans were falsely speaking and teaching wrong doctrine, that their, their bent on lying was, was, was coming into the church or was affecting the church to the degree that the gospel was in jeopardy. And verse 10 describes what those who are false teachers are like. Do you see it? They're rebellious, they're mere talkers, they're deceivers. And the mention of the circumcision group must have meant that thrown into the equation were false Jewish teachers. Verse verse 10. 
Now, now, do you see in verse 14 that there are Jewish myths and commands thrown in, in there? Not only are they doing awful things, they are, verse 15, corrupted. Their minds and their conscience are corrupted, verse 15, so much so that they are taken in by myths and, and these false commands, that they're actually believing the lie. You ever met people like that who actually believe the lie? The lie that they know, if they just had to stand back for a minute, they would know that they're lying, but they're, they're actually believing it. It was a sad day indeed in Crete, but it's a sad day for us when our conscience no longer keeps us in check because it's been seared. And that is what Paul writes about in Romans chapter 2 when he writes concerning men and women whose conscience condemns them. And yet in chapter 1 of Romans, Paul talks about them being abandoned to a depraved mind. What does it take for us to turn a blind eye, not to be bothered about, bothered about injustices and even to promote evil? I remember taking one of my children in the car and um, the youngest, Karis, about a year or two back, and she, there was a report on the news coming across of this, this young girl who was not allowed to, uh, in the Middle East, was not allowed to go to school, <laughs> and she was almost killed for it. And I could see Karis in her young mind, and I can speak about her because she's not here. Hopefully she'll be here next week, so I won't, I won't talk about her then. Um, and I could see her in her young mind trying to work that out. And I said, she said, Dad, the girls not go to school all over the world. Are they not allowed to go to school? And I said, well, in this case, and I explained. And she was adamant. She said, well, what are we going to do about it? So that's the kind of attitude we want, isn't it? But can you, can you imagine the promotion of evil to that extent? A couple of years back, I stood in the concentration camps of Auschwitz where thousands upon thousands of Jews, Polish, Hungarian gypsies that I went to work with in Romania, gypsies and others were executed. What did it take for ordinary soldiers in this, in this uh, remembrance day, what did it take for ordinary soldiers of the German army to do such things? People are being killed by others today whose conscience is seared. And it's a sad point when people get to that, isn't it? Do you see what Cretans are ultimately like? Those in the church, verse 16, who claim to know God, but do you know what? It's dead easy to see if this is true or not. Their faith and action should match it, and it doesn't. Paul, writing to Timothy, encouraged him to watch his life and his doctrine closely because what we believe should affect, should, should change or shape how we live. And how we live shows what we believe. And it's dead easy to see if this is true or not because what we say is true and what we do does not match up. It is by our fruit that we are known. An apple tree produces apples. An orange tree produces oranges. A grape tree produces... There's no such a thing as a grape tree. I was just trying to catch you out there. 
A vine produces grapes. What does a Christian produce? Well, there are many answers, but let's look at what Paul says to Titus, because here he's describing a Christian in verses 5 to 9. Let's look at it. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town. Now, if you had read ahead for today and thought, this is going to be great, we're going to hear what the elders should be like, and we're going to take great delight in our minds with our elders here and think, ah, they should be like that, they should be like And it's true, they ought to be. But if you came reading this and thinking, ah, yeah, yeah, let's see how far short we fall, well, we'll join the club of those who fall far short. And you don't have to go any further than the very word and description of the list for yours truly, blameless. Because friends, if you think I am blameless or any elder is blameless in this sense, you need to open your eyes. For the one that stands before you today has daily battles with sin. Daily battles with sin. I I hang on to the verse, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I need that on a daily basis. John is writing to Christians. That's not necessarily a gospel verse as such, although it's not wrong to use it as such, but but it's for Christians. I need that daily. And most times Christ in me gives me the strength to reject that sin, but sometimes I fall. But I tell you, that is a reality check for us. And what we are is call, we're calling for great discernment here when it comes to understanding the qualifications of an elder here above reproach and blameless cannot mean perfect cannot mean flawless or faultless, for if it did, then I would offer my resignation. I need to know daily the cleansing of the blood of Jesus in my life. In fact, just think of how you possibly left the house this morning, (laughs) if you have a family. Were there no cross words whatsoever? No getting exasperated when the children came out with their slippers on? to go into the car because they wouldn't put their shoes on or you get out the car and they still haven't brushed their hair. You see, there was only one who was faultless, only one who is blameless, in fact sinless, and he is the perfect one that died in my place 2,000 years ago outside the city walls of Jerusalem that through him and his sacrifice I might be seen as acceptable in God's presence. You see, I say be careful because if we're not, then we latch on to this one thing like the next husband of one wife, verse 6, and we make a doctrine out of it. So based on this, anyone, and I've heard it taught, who's not married cannot be an elder. Some churches hold to that. I, I wonder if Timothy and Titus and Paul and all the church leaders back then were, were married. And not only that, not just married, but have children. For 10 years, Kim and I couldn't have children. And we thought we couldn't have any. Then we, we were praying all those 10 years. And then after 10 years, one came. And then after three, I said, God, Lord, please stop. <laughs> you see, 
be, be careful about how we understand Scripture and so on. I don't think Paul is addressing divorce and remarriage here or single elders or childless elders. He is addressing the situation in Crete, which was rife with polygamists, those with two, three, four plus wives. And Paul says they can't be elders. Again, he needs to manage his household well, verse 6, and whose children believe. Now, again, is he saying that anyone who has naughty children cannot be an elder? <laughs> of course, I have perfect children. They take after the, their mum. <laughs> and elders' kids must never go through a rebellious stage. Now, to be fair, that is what some believe Paul is saying here, and I, but I believe that what this is teaching is that the children, as long as they are children, should be under parental control, and they are not wild and tearing the place apart. So, there is a complete difference between those parents who raise their children, and I go and I, I visit them, and I, I try to help in pastoral care for them, there is a difference from those whose parents raise their children in care and nurture them, and some years later, these kids completely reject the faith that their parents shared with them and taught them. Just in two weeks' time, I'm going down to the uh, wedding of my nephew down in Leeds, Matlock, where all the flooding is. They've changed the, the hotel. Um, it's a different hotel, which is good because we haven't booked in yet, and the hotel that they're going to has tons of rooms, so it's great. Um, from that point of view, but Matthew, my sister's second child, is being is getting married to a girl who's not a believer. I spoke at Matthew's um, baptism some six years ago, and now he completely rejects the faith. Completely rejects the faith. Now Paul is going on to explain what he means by being blameless, and he does it by giving five negatives and seven positives. So how many minutes have I got left? Right, okay, that's one minute each. The, the Greeks were good with lists of vices and virtues, uh, and, and so Paul is writing into this context, and he says, verse 7, blameless. Here's what it means to be blameless, by being not overbearing, by being not quick-tempered, by being not given to drunkenness, by being not violent, by being not pursuing dishonest gain. That, this is what it means to be blameless. Not perfect, but rather not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not overbearing, not pursuing dishonest gain. Now, as you read this, this is not just for elders. That is why I avoided calling this study qualifications for being an elder. For this goes much further than this. This is what a Christian should look like. Not just the elders. There isn't a spiritual hierarchy here. But also here are the positive. This is what positively it looks like being blameless. It, me, it looks like being hospitable, one who loves what is good, one who is self-controlled, one who is upright, one who is holy, one who is disciplined. Again, these describe true Christians, not just elders. 
Now, these elders need to be aware of the truth, verse 9, the trustworthy message that they're able to encourage others by sound doctrine, clear teaching, and also to stand up against the lies of the Cretans. And in Crete, there are many rebellious people, remember verse 10, who claim to know God, verse 16, but be denied by their action and their lives, verse 16. And here is how elders should be blameless, and here is what they need to do to hold on, hold on firmly to the trustworthy message by encouraging others, refuting those who oppose it. You have every right to expect your elders to oppose false teaching, not a a different understanding within the evangelical world of a particular verse, but rather false teaching. Elders have to silence the deceivers, verse 11. Why? Because they are ruining families. Elders have to rebuke them sharply, verse 13. Can I ask you, those that aren't elders, do you pray for your elders? I hope you do. I I really hope you do, and not just in church prayer meetings, but I really hope that you pray for them. We have an important task in the church as all all of the believers, elders, and if you have deacons, and, uh, and also in church members, because what God wants in His church are Cretans who are Christians, not Cretans who are rebellious and mere talkers and deceivers who practice, who try to show others that they're Christians. No, what God needs and what God wants in His church are those who are Cretans but are Christians firstly. Scottish but firstly Christian. That was the job Titus had to straighten out into a point God wants people, he, he requires people in his church who will take responsibility to deal with what needs to be dealt with. It is a difficult, anyone who has been involved in any kind of leadership knows just how difficult it is. And some are battle-weary, and some have given up because they're tired, because they've had enough. And we, as the people of God, need to pray for them, that they will do their job well, and that we will be, just like it says on this list, Christians, the church is far too precious to mess around with. It was, after all, Paul who encouraged the Ephesian elders. Do you remember that? to keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Keep watch over yourself and all the flock of which the Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God which He bought with His own blood. Do you see how precious we are? Jesus bought us with His blood. We are His treasured possession. The church is the Lord's treasured possession. And that's why He's put leaders within the church. And many different churches, you know as well as I do, many different churches have different ways of different uh, styles of, of leadership with pastors and elders and so on and deacons. And some churches have a pastor and deacons and some have just the elders and so on. That's not the study for today. It's to say, look here, let's value 
Let's value one another. I know you do it here at Townhead. I know you do it. But let's continue to do it. Let's continue to pray for one another. And let's be resolved in our minds and in our hearts as we leave this place. And as we come into it as well, but as, as we leave this place, to be sure in our minds that we don't want to be Cretans. We want to be Christians. We are his treasured possession and he wants us pure and he places within the church leaders who encourage the purity and the holiness and, the, and challenge and refute everything that wars against it. And so my, my challenge as I finish is this. What are we going to be? Cretan? Christian? May God bless his word to us and help us as we live for him this week. Let's pray, shall we? Father, as we commit our lives again to you today, we acknowledge that we have great need of you, for we are sinners, yes, sinners saved by grace, but Father, your people that struggle daily with the temptation of sin and the difficulties and the pressures of life around us. And we ask, Father, that these encouraging words from the Apostle Paul to Titus and to the churches in Crete, we ask that those words might burn deep into our hearts and our minds so that as we hide our word in our hearts, we might not sin against you. So, Father, bless this church and bless the leaders of this church. I pray that you would cause them to grow in their, their walk with you and their maturing into the people you want them to be. Father, we do not take unity and we do not take leadership for granted. And we ask, Father, that you would continue to bless this church in an amazing and an abundant way. Thank you, Father, for giving us your word and leaving your spirit to, Father, that ministers into the hearts and the lives of each one, each believer, convincing and convicting us of the truth of your word as we live for you in Jesus' name. Amen.